Good morning, everybody. How are we going? Good morning. How are you? G'day, Apricot. G'day, Altherion. Arte, Apricot. Great to talk to you again. Very good. Hi, it's great to have you back here. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm personally running on about three hours of sleep and breakfast use, um, so I apologise in advance. (laughs) That's totally fine. Uh, Today is a uh, mandated non-medication day for me today for my uh, ADHD meds, so I am probably going to be well all over the place more than what I was even last time. Oh, it's all all sounding very exciting. (laughs) Um, Before we begin, I was just wanting to basically open up the floor to you guys and, you know, like I've sent you the the discussion topics already, but I was just wondering if there's any kind of, you know, political news or event that you think has been ignored um, that you'd just like to highlight? Not so much ignored per, per se, but I do find the chatter around the changes to the mutual obligation rules and all that for welfare recipients at the moment to be incredibly polarizing and um i'm not not a big fan of some of the uh what could be fairly described as rusted on labor supporters on twitter basically skewering any welfare recipients on twitter who dare speak out about how unfair some of the changes are Mm, yes. Um, I know Jeremy Poxham, um, you know, he works for the, or volunteers for the Australian Un- Unemployed Workers Union, has been making a lot of noise. Um, yes. But yeah, I would say it has kind of struggled to break more into like the public conscious, uh, which is a shame because these changes are actually, you know, quite uh, widespread. You know, they're impacting like a lot of people and a lot of the communication around them has been really like uh, opaque and a lot of people kind of feeling really concerned about them yes absolutely and look for me i don't particularly have anything i want to uh want to raise i mean i was i was a little bit excited to see that there's the the germ of a victorian secessionist movement the 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 idea of secessionism breaking out across australia does does appeal to me but in terms of uh in terms of major items no I'm, i'm i'm happy with the ones that you've picked apricot Fantastic. Um, I'd just like to quickly highlight the Bragg by-election in South Australia yesterday. Um, we do have the results from that. It looks like the Liberals, sorry, it looks like the Liberals will retain that seat uh, held by the former Deputy Premier. Uh, I believe v- Vicky Chapman was the former Deputy Premier, wasn't she? Uh, I think so, yes. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so... Looking at the results from that, the Liberals were quite well down. They've gone under 50% for, like, the first time, I think, since the 90s now in that seat. Uh, the Greens did have a pretty good showing, getting a 5% swing. They're on 17 18% of the vote in that seat now, and uh, I suspect okay. that'll be a target for them in the future. Mm. Uh, Labor did also did also increase their primary, I think, by about, like, 1.9% or something. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that, and specifically the new Liberal candidates campaign, um, Jack or John Batty, I forget exactly his name, um, but he campaigned heavily on being a new generation Liberal. He's young, he's hip, he likes avocado on toast, and he's not part of the religious <laughs> right. 
Um, so I just thought it would, I just think it's interesting to highlight, you know, is there going to be that kind of shift going forward from the Liberals trying to get those sort of, you know, Teal-esque people in their party again? Yeah, that, look, that might was be that... an interesting strategy for them, for sure. Yes. Sorry to cut you off, Artie. No, 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 no. You you said what I was going to to say. Oh. Great minds think alike, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, then we might move on to our first topic, uh, which is the new Victorian cabinet. We've had some ministers resign. Uh, we've got a new deputy premier in Victoria now. Um, so I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit, um, and it's specifically why I've invited you here, Altherion, today. Um, I know you've got a bit of experience in this area, and I kind of just wanted to talk about how this will impact the upcoming November election and also the internal party, you know, uh, factionalism, if you will. All right. Um, as far as new cabinet's concerned, I haven't really paid terribly much attention to it, but I just wanted to give um, the way I looked at it. Sorry, just bear with me one sec. Mm-hmm. Be my throat. Um, I wanted to address some of the points raised about how people, some commentators are saying like, oh, look, all these people are abandoning the ship. They all must all think that they're, in, they're doomed. And I wanted to address that and what my opinion is on the wider implications for the Labour Party at a state and federal level, if you'll indulge me for a little bit. Yep, we'll certainly will. Okay, well, <clears throat> just to address the four big names that were retiring, uh, Molino, Foley, Neville and Bakula. Um, look, Molino, I know him personally. I campaigned a bit up in Monbolk when I was very new to the party. Uh, this year, he's been an MP for 20 years. His kids are at an age where they're starting to, you know, blossom into young adults, as you say. And so it, it, it doesn't terribly surprise me that he is retiring now. Like 20 years as an MP is a pretty long time, let's be honest. Mm. Um, mm. And he's also a very, very deeply religious person. And he does place a lot of emphasis on the importance of family and spending time with family. So Molino announcing a retirement... Not really a great surprise on the surface, but with the deeper changes going through the Victorian Labor Party with um, his chances of being elevated up into the top spot looking a bit less and less likely, as I'll elaborate, that could be a subtext read into it. <clears throat> mm, all right. Martin Foley, again, he's, what, 60 this year? Um, I lived in uh, Martin Foley's electorate of Albert Park for years and was heavily involved in his campaign and federal campaigns and branch executives and everything. So I know for a fact that Martin Foley was considering retiring before the previous election. Mm. But um, Mm -hmm. he was given a lot of funding to campaign in 2018. He was given extra public speaking ministerial roles and all this um, in an effort to shore up the Labour vote against the encroachment of the Greens. So Ah, I suspect they just didn't want to run the risk of putting a new face in in 2018 and risk the huge, huge personal following that Foley has. And like anyone can see that Foley is a very, very well-liked local member. So 
he's done his duty, he's shored up the margin in the seat, and so now the Vic Labor Party can afford to put in a fresh face and not really run the risk of losing the seat. Mm. Uh, Lisa Neville, I admittedly don't really know much about her because being on the west side of Melbourne, I spent most of my time on the east side of Melbourne, but, you know, former spouse to um, uh, Richard Miles, uh, was an MP for a super safe seat. Uh, I, look, she's got known health issues and is clearly a strong factional player to have been pre-selected in such a very, very safe seat. But again, she's done her 20 years in office and with her health issues, not surprising that she's retiring. And, mm. and even Pakula, like his seat no longer exists after the next election. So unless he wanted to like <laughs> shoulder out someone else, he had to retire. Like they probably don't want to have another repeat of a... Um, uh, oh God, her name just instantly jumped out of my head. Uh, former New South Wales Premier. Christina Lady. Keneally. Oh, yes, thank you. God, for some reason I just kept thinking Tanya Plibershay. I'm like, no, different, different <laughs> person. So yeah, so <laughs> unless Pakula shouldered someone out, they didn't want the negative optics around that. So whatever, retiring. So all four of those together, like even all four of them announcing retirement on the same day, like that's hardly surprising under normal circumstances. Like it, they've all been around for a while, they're retiring, whatever, shrug your shoulders. But when you add that together with the huge number of right faction aligned MPs that have been purged in the uh, during this term of Victorian Parliament, mm. I think uh, that combined with the... Uh, almost two or three years now that Victorian ALP members haven't had a chance to vote in pre-selections or have state conference uh, properly or anything like that. Basically, this looks to me from the insiders like a, uh, a massive push at now that the opportunity has presented itself by Andrews and the left faction to destroy the power base of the right faction in Victoria. Oh, well, look, that's the that's something that I would like to get into. But but before we we just before we get on to to that side, because for me I had that marked down as one of the important points. Uh, the situation that you presented for someone like say like me, an average voter, that's a fairly sophisticated view of it. Uh, with the stories that you're talking about. Uh, why people may or may not have left and why it actually makes sense. From the view of the average voter, they're essentially just going to see numbers uh, and really perception is what what matters uh, when it comes yes. to the, the, the voting booth. Do you think the, the average voter like me is going to be sophisticated enough on voting day to to see it as just natural attrition or are they going to be uh, taken in by that it's uh, rats leaving a sinking ship? Um, frankly, I think that a large percentage of the average voter, as you say, Adit, uh probably wouldn't even know the name of their local MP. Mm. So mm. I don't think the, an average voter who is politically disengaged is going to even know or care the name of their party's candidate and a lot of people just vote along party lines they don't care who the candidates are so no i don't think it's going to have a huge impact to be honest okay you don't think the uh the, the numbers because the numbers are good headline numbers 
will the numbers make the difference? Oh, look, it, it depends on how much it's played up. Like, if if this is all we see of it of, you know, this number of MPs retiring and there's new fresh faces coming in, like, if that is given a lot of focus in the lead all the way up to election, sure, it could have an impact. It'd be silly to say otherwise. But, mm. like, if all of these retirements and new announcements and everything were made even three or four months ago, I I think by the time the poll day comes, it it's going to have very little, if any, impact. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, look, the, uh, the 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 second point that you were talking about, uh, I'll give you my little take on on that, and then the two of you two, you're you're a little bit more au fait with the the workings. Uh, like to hear your, your comment as we continue discussing this topic. For me, the large the thing that stood out was that the processes are being ignored. There was a article June twenty fourth in the Age that said, in a further display of his control over the makeup of the ministry, the premier also defied defied party processes. I've got that underlined and reject a push by members of his socialist left caucus for a democratic ballot to choose their ministers. Then there was an article again in the age 29th of June that said a separate Labor source said Kairouz, if I hopefully pronounced her name correctly, uh, said Kairouz felt scorned by the party's processes and did not feel obliged to spare Premier Daniel Andrews a by-election. For me, the commonality that I'm seeing is processes and potentially uh, an abuse of processes. And my personal opinion is that when I see people behind the scenes manipulating processes, I'm seeing strings being pulled and I'm seeing the murky nature of politics showing its dirty little fingerprints. That's how I see it. What do you two think? I I do generally agree with you. Like, it's not great when um, these sorts of things are found out to be happening. I I think th- you're right in that process is not following their proper course is a terrible thing and and not just the Victorian branch of the Labor Party but the the whole Labor Party all around Australia like it is definitely sometimes you know processes are followed sometimes they're mm-hmm. not it all comes down to what process what factions like it, it's it's an absolute quagmire of deals and backdoor deals and preferences and you know who's supporting who at any given moment so Um, it's like a captain barbosa situation where you know they're more like guidelines yeah i guess you could say that yes but um i do take what a marlene crew is or have you sorry i can't pronounce her name either i date um i do take what she says with a little bit of a grain of salt because She's obviously feeling a bit put out because she's been implicated in the whole Somurek saga, was a big player in the right faction, and is one of those people who is being directly having their power base eroded through all of the processes that are going on. So yes, it is fair to say that proper processes weren't followed, but proper processes aren't being followed for anyone in the party at the moment like rank and files don't have a say like pre-selections are being suspended everywhere not just for people Mm. on the right so yes accurate to say proper process is not necessarily being followed not fair to say that she's being unfairly targeted or anything like that Hmm. Hmm. see i can't help so i can't really help look at this um 
and how Andrews is wielding his power within the party and not view it almost as kind of like assuring his legacy in a way. Like, um, I forget her name. She's just become the new deputy premier. Um, Jacinta Allen, I want to say, I want to say, um, he was clearly like her fate, like he, like, sorry, she was clearly his favorite to become the deputy premier. And it wouldn't surprise me if she ends up like succeeding him should Labor win the November election and Andrews retires, uh, in the next term. Um, I, I, I really don't know how long Andrews can stay in as premier. I think his brand is very much damaged. Um, and not necessarily just with, you know, because of the COVID lockdowns and things like that. You have to wonder how the party membership kind of views Andrews at this point. Because you're right, they haven't been able to vote for, you know, two, three years at this point. Um, he is clearly making moves can, can against you other just, members. We'll get back, we'll get back, but just can you uh, just clarify for, for for me and other people listening the the main reasons they're giving for what's essentially a suspension of, of processes. So sorry to interrupt, but it's been mentioned a couple of times, okay. and I think it's worthwhile just just giving those basics. Yeah, it it, it effectively comes down to trying to publicly bring the problems around branch stacking to to the light. Um, it came out like you know it's the Somurex saga and all this stuff. Effectively. Both all of the different factions in the Labor Party, in one way, shape, or form, take part in brand stacking. You know, getting mm-hmm. sympathetic people to join the party who more or less don't take part, but just vote for people who they're told to vote for to shore up power. Right. And uh, you know, it, both sides do it. Have been going on for years. It's a terrible thing, but it happens. And then you know, the very clear and public evidence of it came to light with Adam Somurek. And so Andrews and the left faction took this as the opportunity to say, right, we're going to run the risk that they've got similar evidence on us. We're going to bring it all into the light and use this as a power play to be able to flush out the influence of the right, which um, through, and by doing that, they stopped all new membership additions to the party uh, Mm. with and suspended the voting rights of rank and file members to do things like pre-select candidates for state and federal elections, uh, vote on substantive party motions and anything like that. It was all being decided by head office. And mm. while there while there is a factional balance in head in head office, uh, the the interesting thing is at a federal level, the right holds slightly more power than the left uh, over the grand scheme of things. But in Victoria, the left holds slightly more power. So by having all these voting processes suspended, mm. the, with with only a little bit of compromise, the left has been able to more or less dictate things for the last few years. Uh, that's interesting. So drawing the the opportunity out of crisis. Thanks, thanks for that. And sorry to interrupt you there, there, Apricot. I I was curious about that, and I figured a number of other people would be. You were talking about the legacy of Dan Andrews. Yeah, that's okay, Deep. Thanks. Um, so I, I basically wrapped up what I wanted to say on that. In that, you know, this really feels like a changing of the guard. Andrews is kind of you know assembling the team that he wants post himself um, where he can kind of leave the party 
or maybe his faction in the best position that it can be. Um, I think it's also worth just highlighting again that the that this new cabinet, um, the recent resignations haven't been the only resignations. Um, a notable one earlier this year or at the end of last year was uh, Richard Wayne Wine. I forget how you say his last Wait. name. Win, thank you. But he's the planning minister who's retiring from Richmond at this point. Um, and I did also want to address your point about Martin Foley, Altherion, um, mm-hmm. in terms of keeping him around for 2018 um, to kind of, you know, fend off the Greens in a way. <laughs> Looking back at the 2018 election, I can't help but wonder, maybe they should have let him go. The 2018 uh, federal elect, sorry, Victorian election wasn't great for the Greens. Um, and now having come off the federal election where, you know, we did have quite a few swings, uh, the Greens perhaps have a bit more notoriety, um, you know, amongst the voting populace now, I, in, yes. like there is a buffer there. I can't help but wondering if maybe that was a misstep. Well, it all comes down to hindsight being 2020, in my opinion, like mm. I know that a lot of people in the Victorian Labor Party power structure were sincerely worried about 2018 like they thought we had it way too good in 2014 we need to prepare ourselves for potentially a tough fight to win 2018 and basically everyone was left with their jaws on the floor when it was rolled in by mm-hmm. by labor in 2018 like like there were legitimately people like going what how could we possibly be getting swings this big mm. and so the risk was taken in 2018 because they thought they were going to lose more than they than they gained but now it, it's it's almost at the point i suspect of well this swing back is going to happen at some point and you can't really predict the future so now they need to lay in the bed that they've made mm. yeah um it wouldn't surprise me if there's a swing back at this point either um but let's not know. underestimate I... how terrible Matthew Guy and the Vic Libs are. <laughs> oh, that's the problem, isn't it? That's really oh. the problem. Like, does Victoria have an opposition? Like, the last time I heard, like, um, oh, God damn it, uh, Tim Pallas has recently decided to partly privatise Vic Roads. Awful oh. decision. And I'm probably going to hammer it, like, you know, certainly when I'm running, like, my local campaign, I'm going to be highlighting that quite significantly. Um but Matthew Guy did a press release where he was like, where he had to kind of go like, this is an awful decision by the government, but actually we would have made the exact same decision. <laughs> like, well, even um, Tim Smith, you know, famous drunk driver Tim Smith, um, mm-hmm. he was, when he, you know, came out of his Twitter exile recently, he publicly lambasted the leadership of the Vic Lives, you know, calling them out saying things like hello is there even an opposition here in victoria like what are you guys doing so clearly there's huge divisional problems in the vic libs they're, they're basically bankrupt as well so i think they mm-hmm. will struggle to run a really good campaign but that has the consequence that of that andrews doesn't need to work as hard to be able to maintain power when it in my opinion, he needs to get some screws put on him because, you know, 
I'm, you know, everyone knows I've talked about it a lot. I'm a former member of the ALP. I've run campaigns for them for a decade, but there needs to be some sort of pushback so they don't get complacent and so they don't just assume that they're going to win. Yeah, the our democratic system kind of relies on the inherent nature that there is an alternative. Yeah. Uh, and we don't really seem to have one in Victoria at this point. Um, so that's all very interesting. And I'm sure it's going to all kind of, you know, gather steam as we head towards November. Uh, stay tuned, everyone, for that. We're going to be talking about Victoria a lot more, I presume. Um, sorry to all you Welshmen here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I... I would just caution people not to get too fixated on the Victorian election in regards to all these MPs leaving and uh, being forced out and the power of the left over the right faction in Victoria. Don't don't focus too much on the state election. I would personally be casting my eyes forward to 2025 because the power mm. balance between the left and right factions at a federal level is going to be significantly altered, no matter what the result is in Victoria. And so that will be where you really will see the factional knives start to come out, I suspect. Well, you've heard it here first. Imagine having a scoop <laughs> before any of the other major parties. Sorry, I'm <laughs> <Yeah. publications. laughs> We might move on to our second subject. Uh, which is the Barilaro man is bad, um, <laughs> and, and I, I I've probably been a bit of a naughty political observer in that I basically haven't paid attention to the Barilaro story. He went and got a trade commissioner job. He's quit that job because he may have used his previous influence as a deputy premier to get that job. That's my understanding of it. Um, yeah, can anyone give me a wasn't paying attention rundown? Um, I have only just been partially paying attention because I, I, as a Queen Victorian and not, and not a New South Welshman, I don't really have my, you know, any, any feeling at all as to how it's being received locally in New South Wales. But, um, mm -hmm. I suspect, you know, at a high level pub test type level, like so many people can see this and know that it's, it stinks to high heaven but still having said that like both on the both from labor and liberal party and with their history in icac like kind of new south wales is famous for its political corruption let's be honest <laughs> so yeah i i don't think like especially because the new south wales elections nine months away like nine months is a long time in politics mm. i mean how many voters how many liberal voters are going to a change their votes as or nationals voters even are going to change their votes as a result of all this shenanigans and b how many of them are going to stay mad enough to keep their vote changed by the time the poll comes around yeah look i, I think that's an important point I've, I've got family up in new south wales and uh just a couple of days or a day ago was up there for a, a, a family event uh my reading of the pub test is that it's it's a it's a it's a it's a spicy little scandal that you can talk about and opine about. Uh, my reading is that it was virtually viewed as look, this is business as usual. 
this has been going on for for years. And I think uh, from from a perspective of New South Wales, it's not just a liberal thing. Liberals certainly are been <laughs> certainly been leaving their mark on it in in New South Wales. But there's been so many years of incompetence from both the majors in New South Wales that I think people are to me seem to be a little bit weary of the whole thing and weary people often tend to just fall back to what's familiar and as you were saying Altherion familiar is going to be who do I normally vote for so it was yeah it was a little bit of scandal you know people like to have a bit of a chat about the the, the scandal uh I don't think it's got much in the way of legs and I certainly think that fortunately for Perrottet people have a short memory. It'll be trotted out, but he can say quite reasonably, look, we've already dealt with that issue. We did the right thing here and we get to move on from there. So look, I, I suppose that the, the, the thing that I do wonder about was uh, whether there's uh, whether there's sort of concern within the actual party uh, it, itself, there was uh, an article in the Sydney Morning Herald where the Transport Minister David Elliott had said that Barrow, uh, Barillaro should do the honourable thing and not take up the position. There was a few inter few people within the New South Wales Liberal Party coming out and saying, "Yeah, you know, we really sort of need to be open and transparent about this." And when you have uh, people within the party coming out and open and publicly saying stuff like that it makes me wonder if that's something leaking through cracks or whether it's people just uh just protect taking the opportunity to to have a grandstand so i don't know the answer to that but insofar as barillaro i think it's just going to be another another bit of corruption another bit of the people being shafted blowing over and people will move on to the next one yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Like, um, forgive me for my terrible memory, but is it Chris Mins who's Labour yes, leader it in is. South Wales? Yeah, and um, like I personally hate him. Like, I, <laughs> I think that it he Chris could trot this out in you know six, seven, eight months time as like, oh, remember when Barillaro did this? But personally, I think that'll be a waste of resources to lean too hard on it. Like, I don't think it's got legs. I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. Yeah. Mm. And the other thing as well to consider, um, and again, maybe this is just because, you know, I'm a Victorian who's been subjected to a bunch of propaganda and whatnot, um, but I don't think New South Wales Labor can even really go hard on this, because when I think about, you know, corruption in New South Wales, my mind just mm. immediately goes to, a, you know, a brown Aldi bag at the New South Wales <laughs> yeah. Labor headquarters. Like, Absolutely. That, like, that was just comically comically um just comically highlighted you know corruption you know like you can't get really much worse than just bags of money being delivered to you yeah um so yeah i don't think it really goes anywhere i don't think it impacts the state election um uh, i think it's very interesting uh and uh, Side note, I did, I'm pretty sure you just informed me that I've uh, been mispronouncing the Premier, New South Wales Premier's name wrong. Um, I've always gone and called him, you know, Premier uh, Perriot. Is that not it? Oh, oh Perrottet. <laughs> Perrottet, yeah. Perrottet, okay, whoopsies. Yeah. Um, I know that he's from the more traditionally right-wing, you know, religious part of the Liberal Party, but he does seem um, 
fairly like his government seems to be relatively moderate to an extent. I think Matt Keane, uh, the treasurer, and I think he's the environment minister as well, has significant power. And it's yes. kind of, there's been a few really kind of awkward moments as a Victorian where I've heard about decisions that the New South Wales Liberals have uh, made and I've gone, I'm a little jealous. And I don't like that. Like, you know, when they're talking um, about getting rid of like uh, stamp duty, in favour of, like, a land tax. I'm like, why can't we do that? Mm, um, and things like that. It's a bit weird. And, you know, they've also, they're, they're pushing quite hard on renewables. I think they're really trying to distance themselves from the former federal government. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Good. We're all in agreement with that then. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I think it's it's prudent uh, and it's also in evidence that that's their, their current strategy. Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, before we move on to our third and final topic, uh, I, do, I don't know if there's really any comments, if you want to read them out. No, I was, I was just looking, uh, I, I was just looking through uh, the, the, the comments, none, none particular to, to what we're di- discussing. Uh, hello back to you. Numerous tip five, eight, seven, one. And there was a, a general comment about the, from two zero two one Adam, talking about the uh the general left-leaning nature of, of of reddit however in terms of the topics that we've got uh today don't have any particular questions so i think uh i think we can move on to move on to another uh into our next topic our third one all right yeah. then so our last topic is basically just going over the census results that recently released um australia is becoming more non-religious uh, and the age of the millennial is beginning. The millennial group basically makes up the same percentage as the boomers now. Um, what do we think are going to be some of the long-term, like, electoral impacts of this? You know, the obvious one is when you think, you know, religious boomers, you kind of think liberal voter. No offence, Adi. Um, oh, but, hang on. Hang sorry, on. Like, you're, assu- you're assuming I'm a liberal voter there, Apricot. No, touche, touche, fair point. Um, but, you know, you, you tend to think... Uh, liberal voter in general. So as Australia becomes more non-religious, as the millennials become a much more, let's be frank, important voter group, you know, as they tend to, as as with the natural, you know, march of time, they make up a larger percent um, uh, of the voting populace. What are some of the long-term trends that you think we're going to see? The, t- the two of you are younger than than me, so I'm I'm more interested in hearing what you have to have to say. However, I do want to throw in one thing that there is an inbuilt history of humans being wired to to, to worship or acknowledge something greater than ourselves as a generalisation. So my question, and you might be able to weave this into your answers of what you see in the time ahead. My question that I would add to that is what will the millennials substitute uh, for what they want to worship? All right. Um, that's an interesting thing to ponder there, Adit. Thanks for throwing that in. Oh, want to worship. Interesting. Um, I think I've got a book on my bookshelf, actually, uh, entitled Religion for Atheists that I only got about one chapter in before I got bored. But I should, you know, go back and look at that. So, yeah, it's an interesting point to raise. Um, I don't I can't directly answer that. So I don't know. But 
I just want to say right from the onset, I really like the sound of the way you framed it, Apricot, as the age of the millennial. You know, that, that, that tickles me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my two main thoughts about the whole census and religion thing and all that is, one, that I don't really think the decline in the religious religiosity of different generations at this point in time will have much of an impact uh, on policy or anything like that, mostly because um, our MPs are far more religious than the general populace. Um, I think it's something like, you know, eight or nine out of 10 uh, Catholic, which is way, way less than the the general population. Mm. And Mm -hmm. there's also, you know, Aussies tend to, you know, there's the stereotype of, of, the she'll be right and you know not rocking the boat type attitude and you know whilst a lot more aussies might not be identifying as religious i still think there's a lot of sympathy towards religious groups or churches it's like i suspect that if right now there was like a you know a opinion poll taken of the the whole of uh the country and asked the question should we start taxing churches and religious groups um i suspected it get very very soundly defeated not Mm. because people generally are religious but because there's that inherent sympathy towards the status quo that australians enjoy so i I think that it'll be quite a while before we see any substantive change in policy as a result as a direct link to religion in the country okay Mm. then hmm i I'm a little concerned about the long-term trend, if I'm honest. I believe millennials and, like, you know, Gen Z and stuff, um, which, you know, I am a part of, I think we're very uh, mistrusting of institutions of power, Um, which in one hand is a good thing, you know what I mean? Like, we're very sceptical, you know, if uh, a politician announces something where it's like, hey, we're doing this great thing for you, I think a lot of our immediate response is with, and what's the catch? Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, you, you, like we don't we don't expect government to work for us, really. Um, but that comes with the risk, I think, of disengagement, even like even further, just completely disengagement, because we don't expect government to work for us, so we don't pay attention to what the government is doing. Um, and I think a good example of that is like you know the new protesting laws that have come into effect in Victoria and things like that. Um. Uh, there's been a lot of anti-protest laws around the country, actually, and it's becoming quite a problem, in my view. And I don't know if mm. necessarily... <sighs> it's hard to say. Because on one hand, you've got, like, the climate change strikes, you know, which were some, like, the largest strikes that have, you know, occurred recently. Um, so on one hand, millennials and Gen Z have shown the capacity to organise politically. Um, but I don't know if they can kind of maintain that momentum going forward, if that makes sense. Or if, like, you know, there, there is a, I feel like there is a dystopian future where millennials and Gen Z have kind of completely disengaged from politics and we all kind of just go to work and our meager income with wages, wages that haven't risen in 30 years or whatever and mm-hmm. then go home and that's it, you know? Um what, why do you th- so, why do you think it might not why, – why do you think there would be um, difficulty in maintaining that – uh, that that momentum you, because you since we don't ex- because since we don't expect government to work for us when we see you know examples of corruption like the Barilaro thing 
I think like a lot of people's response will be like, oh yeah, of course. And it's just a bit depressing. And so we stop paying attention. And so we don't notice when mm. governments do certain things, you know, that will probably, that they would have been, um, they would have been, you know, caught up on before by the public. Well, I, I just to draw a parallel to the religion side of the, the census data, I think it like to, to, to disagree with you ever so slightly, Apricot, I don't necessarily think that young people in particular, like my age and younger, because, you know, I'm right at the very end of the, the top end of the millennial bracket. Um, mm. I don't think it's necessarily a problem with people maintaining the rage in inverted commas, um, just like, uh, um, oh, sorry, my daughter's just coming up. Just one sec, darling. I'm talking at the moment. Um, I think that... It's, Speaking it's, of new generations coming up. <laughs> yes, new generations <laughs> coming up. Uh, I don't think that maintaining the rage necessarily is the problem. Uh, just like we see, particularly with young people, like uh, I'm talking 25 and down to 18, like that young, uh, new adult, if you want to call it that age bracket, we see mm -hmm. a huge political engagement with that age group, but we see a total stark difference with like political party engagement, particularly when it comes to any of the larger parties. And I think it's the mm. same with like uh, the, that parallel there with religion as well, as well. Like people aren't identifying as religious, but people, but the member, you have to remember that the no religion category of the census also includes things like new age spirituality and things like that. So mm. I think it's people are still maintaining that political engagement, but not necessarily tying it to a formalized political structure. Mm -hmm. So I think there'll be a more of a groundswell of these sort of disconnected uh, political cells or single issue cells that at various times will ally with each other or be opposed to each other and work together for common goals and things like that. So, so yeah, I don't necessarily think that there'll be a problem maintaining political engagement. It will just be a question of who is engaged at any given time and on what given hmm. topic. Do you think we're seeing, uh, perhaps seeing the, because the, the, I, I had to look up the uh, uh, date definitions, and Pew Research has between 1981 and 1996 uh, birth date is considered a millennial and from 97 uh, on was Gen Z. Uh, so I had to look at that. Do you think that we're possibly starting to see that um, attraction towards uh, more, more fractured issues coming out and being uh, essentially manifesting in uh, the most recent federal election is that too long a draw, blow uh, too long a bow to draw, or are we perhaps seeing indications of the age of the millennial? What do you two think? Ooh, good question. Mm. Um, I I think April and I will will probably agree on this point that because we've talked about it previously in comment threads where we are probably seeing before our eyes at this point in time the collapse of the traditional support for the two major parties in Australia and so 
to tie it in with what I was just saying about people supporting their given causes at any given moment, I think we'll see the same sort of thing politically as well. Like we'll see that fracturing in the formalised structured support for the Labour Party or the Liberal Party or the Greens or whatever, and that will then necessarily be reflected in our future parliaments as well, where we'll we will, I suspect we'll see more independents, more minor parties and an evening out in broad terms of support for Labor, Liberal, Greens, other, whatever. Hmm. I'd say you're correct. I'm just trying to grab the numbers now. I don't have them on hand. Um, I'm going to be super interested in looking at the you know 2022 election study. Um, because, you know, I really enjoyed the 2019 one. I found it very interesting. And I'm really curious just to see how that would have changed um, in a sense. Uh, but, 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 and I can't find the numbers. But it was something like um, if you looked in the age bracket from 18 to, I think, 34 or something like that. Um, no, sorry, not. it was 18 to 24. Uh, it was like 37% of those voters voted green. And I'm really interested to see if that will have gone like as a higher percentage um, and where that's really changed. I don't, like, yes, I think the traditional two-party structure will continue to degrade over time, barring some, you know, miracle essentially from a government that's able to, you know, capture the hearts and minds of the nation. Sorry, Aldo, I don't think you're that. Um, <laughs> um, but I don't know if that's going to how that will really translate. I think you're right in the sense of like fracturing into like you know, um, separate little groups kind of thing. But then the concern becomes how that fits in with our political system because our system, you know, particularly in the House of Representatives, rewards voter concentration. And so I think having everyone, you know, split apart is going to be maybe not necessarily the most efficient way. Like I look at wills, uh, the electorate of wills in the last election. Um, Greens ran there. Uh, you had the Victorian Socialist running there as well. And then you also had the Socialist Alliance, you know. Um, there were three like quite left-wing parties running on that ticket uh, alongside Labour. And I just can't help but wonder if that, is that how it's is that how it's going to become in the future? And is that the most efficient thing to happen? Oh, of course that'll happen in the future because you know, especially the socialists in in Victoria, but you know, left leftists in general, we we are famous for disagreeing with each other and you know being more critical of each other than what we are of anyone on the right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, um, and you, you you think that'll even continue, like? We won't be able to, you know, I'm looking at it where I feel like not necessarily, uh, words are hard. I, I talk up the Greens a lot, um, but I do think well, that the I've Greens never vote, noticed that. You know, right? <laughs> but I do, I personally believe that the Green vote in this country is probably going to cap at like 20, 25%. Like the core message, I don't mm. think we'll be able to appeal beyond that group like percentage wise you know what I mean I don't think there's ever going to be really a time where the greens win you know 42% primary vote kind of in this country mm. um and so I I think it's just a really interesting future to ponder well I think one of the things that could be a little bit left field 
for the, the future is we're assuming that there's going to be small variations of the system that we have at the moment. You made the comment about it favouring concentrations. We've seen the impact of uh, the the internet and, and modern technology. So uh, left field thing that I'd throw into there is if we have the main people, the millennials and Gen Z that need to be appealed to, is it possible that our electoral system will change in order to see in in order to cater to people in different locations, uh, in disparate areas, need coming together to make decisions rather than from uh, a local concentrated area up? It seems to me that if you have a couple of generations who are, are used to remote interaction. I mean, look at the three of the three of us. We're not even in the same place, and uh, that's that's common nowadays. I wonder mm. whether the electoral system can change to cater for that, and whether that might be part of what actually incentivizes millennials and subsequently Gen Z to fundamentally change how we create political power in Australia. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Um, I believe, Apricot, you've you've talked about uh, the idea in the past of, forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, but uh, a single transferable vote with a multi-member electorates. Yes, um, I have. Like, I, th I think that might be part of a discussion that certainly is finding its feet now and will only grow stronger in the future. But also, you know, being a qualified historian and, you know, uh, looking back at the past to predict the future as a, any good Marxist historian does, uh, huh. I think that uh, there will be an argument made against multi-member electorates because the Senate exists, because mm. this disparate collection of people, like-minded people that you're talking about, RD, some people might just shrug their shoulders and go, well, you've got the Senate. If enough people who in a large geographical area want to support mm. X party or X candidate, that's what the yep. Senate's for. I see. Yep. Mm, that's true. Yeah, that's, the that's, other... that's a good call, mate. <laughs> The other thing that I would like to highlight as well, um, it's quite possible that, you know, we're going to have a referendum on a voice to parliament or possibly even a republic uh, in the next two terms. Um, I'm going to call it now and say that I'm going to be disappointed by those. Um, like, <laughs> if, there was a if there was a referendum held tomorrow, you know, to become a republic kind of thing, I'm honestly not entirely sure how I would vote. Um because although I am like a Republican in terms of, you know, I believe Australia should be a republic, I feel you like when first, that folks, time... apricots are Republican. <laughs> yeah. I knew it. Um, <laughs> when that time comes, and I believe it will come eventually, um, I'm going to be really disappointed if it's just, uh, you know, should we change the flag? Should we you know, just change the name mm. kind of thing and not really fundamentally change some of the systems that we have. Um, you know, I, I feel like rewriting the constitution um, and becoming a republic is a very once in a nation's lifetime um, kind of event. And I feel like we're probably mm. going to squander that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't think, you know, 
changing the name of the governor general to president and leaving everything else more or less untouched would be a sufficiently good use of time. Uh, oh, forgive me, but I can't think of the country off the top. It was it Chile recently who basically just like threw out their entire constitution and rewrote the whole thing recently. The uh, month in Brazil? Was it, it wasn't, wasn't Colombia, was it? Uh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember. But it, it was a South American country. I know that much yeah, at least. I, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that they took the opportunity recently to go. You know what? This system, which has existed for X number of years, just isn't working anymore. Let's build it again from scratch. Like if we could just wipe the slate clean and do that, cool. That is a much more daunting prospect mm. than just tinkering around the edges. But I think that it's something that seriously needs to be considered. Like, like we can only draw the parallels with what's happening in America at the moment and what is being described as a rogue Supreme Court overthrowing long-established rights, left, right, and center mm. of how difficult it can become to maintain a constantly evolving and changing country into modern times with rules that were set in place, you know, 200 plus years ago. In some mm. cases, mm. true. Well, hey, just before we, uh, I, I know yeah. we're on the tail end, but uh, we've just got two comments. We've got one comment uh, from Ben along as uh, political tragic. It is really frustrating that states keep electing premiers whose names are unpronounceable. So we, we've all had a bit of a, a struggle this morning with that. And we have uh, uh, two comments from Nicrone. Uh, or Nicrone that I'll combine. Labor will strengthen their majority provided they steer the course. The miners will lose influence next election. You can't treat this as the new normal since Scott Morrison was so unpopular with the majority. The additional media coverage will do the Greens no favour with the majority either. So that's just two comments from uh, a couple of people that are, are, are tuned in. I wanted to just get them in before the, uh, the wrap-up part, Apricot. Thank you. And just before we do, I would just like like to respond to the last one. Uh, yes. The increased media coverage. What increased media coverage? Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, uh, I put together a list of all the guests that had been on Q&A and Insiders uh, since the election, uh, kind of out of my own, you know, curiosity. Um, and not a single one of those guests has been a green. Uh, we are nowhere to be seen. Look, uh, as, as to play devil's advocate ever so slightly, I read that comment as the increased media coverage of the Greens as something that is potentially going to happen in the future, not something that has been happening in the recent past. Fair, fair. I don't know if that will occur, though. Um, having looked at it, I feel like the Teals are going to get a disproportionate amount of coverage. Everyone's going to be focusing on them and what they're doing um as you know the hip new kids on the block kind of thing um hmm. I, I was particularly interested to find out that you know despite being an mp for all of you know three weeks or whatever zoe daniel uh the new independent for goldstein has both had a q a appearance and an insider's interview um so Whereas very all busy. I know about uh that one of the new greens mps in queensland is that he doesn't own a suit that fits huh yes max chandler mather Yes, anti-suit guy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, admittedly, oh, just a, on a tangent on that, I, one of the great changes that I really liked from Daniel Andrews' time in office is that you know the premier 
stopped wearing ties in press conferences about what nine years ago now and it's just become the normal thing that you know so many pollies these days just aren't wearing ties everywhere and i'm all for it because ties are terrible Ban ties. All right. So that's going to be your election platform, is it? That's, that's my <laughs> <Yeah>. platform. <laughs> All righty then. Well, on that note, we might look at wrapping up. Uh, did anyone want to say anything else? No, I think that's a, that's a good, 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 good spot. We've got Eltherion's uh, election platform of end ties, mine of increased secession. And let's finish off with what your election platform would be, Apricot. Sleep. <laughs> so, like, mandated sleep everyone get your rest well, I think it's an interesting question to ponder to our listeners to leave in comments or what have you what uh, RD raised before is you know tying in with the decrease in religious uh, identification on generational mm. levels like what is something that you could see substituting for in inverted commas worship for mm. people moving forward. I think that's a very interesting philosophical question to ponder and maybe it's beyond the scope of Ozpol and might be better for like Oz philosophy if such a thing exists. But yeah, I think that's interesting to ask and I'd be curious to hear what people have to say. Hmm, same here. There you have it, folks. Alrighty. Well, thank you for joining me. I'm going to play us out and you guys have a great day. Thank Thanks you. very much, Apricot. Thank you, Adi. Thank you, Apricot. Thanks, Ethereum. See ya. <laughs>